This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, principal second violin and artistic administrator, Merwin Sue, and we have a special guest returning to the panel today that is musicologist and BGSU faculty member, Effie Papanicolaou. Welcome, Effie. Thank you. And thank you for having me back. Back by popular demand, for sure. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back and, and considering rejoining this crazy panel of uh, folks this, uh, today. Oh, I, I, was, I asked for it. I, well, it was after our discussion about uh, Brahms and the Schumanns that we discussed this idea of Mahler, and that was one of my favorite episodes of this season, was talking yeah. through the history with you. So Yeah, so last time we, we talked about the Schumanns, uh, Clara and Robert, and then Johannes Brahms, who was an honorary Schumann, <laughs> and now we're turning to Mahler, a big concert that's happening this weekend. It is the 17th and 18th, Friday and Saturday at 8 o'clock p.m. This is at the Toledo Museum of Art Paris style, Alain Trudel, at the podium, and it is the Mahler Symphony Number no. Two, also known as the Resurrection Symphony. We're going. We are going to hear a couple of singers, Sarah Schaefer and Susan Platts, as well as assembled choruses, which are coming from the the community. Right? They'll we'll be here having some singers from the University of Michigan um, Choral Union um, for the Toledo Opera Chorus, and a, I think Effie, you're going to be joining as well. Yes, uh, yeah? yes, yeah, I so. have joined already. Wow. Uh, before we just talk all about Mahler, let's let's do something that I like to call Mahler and Me, where you go around and just tell us a little bit about your personal experiences with Mahler and why you love Mahler so much. I'm assuming that you love Mahler, right? Uh, who wants to go first? Be it Zach or Effie? Let me get a little, pull up a little um, music for you here. It might be a competition between Zach and me then. Yeah. Oh. Why? Why it's a good it choice. It's why a would you make us? Choice. Why would you make us talk on top of this? Well, because it ha- now you have to get serious for a minute. Mm, I don't get serious. I get sentimental and nostalgic <laughs> in this one. This is the famous Adagetto. This is from the Fifth Symphony. Yeah. Uh, which is not the one we're performing this weekend, but it is the one we will perform in September to open the season. Ah, and it also makes a nice background for mm-hmm. Mahler and me. I think I'll start because this is probably a really um, good choice for my Mahler and me moment. Um, I was completely unaware of Mahler until my undergraduate years. Um, Mm. It's not really something that uh, high school orchestras are able to pull off um, often. So, Um, but we had a very dedicated uh, Malarian at McGill University. His name was Timothy Vernon. He's now, I believe, the director of Pacific Opera in Victoria. We, we should say Malarian, like somebody who is, uh, you know, enjoys Mahler, right? Not not somebody who has malaria. malaria. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't <laughs> even thought of that. Um, living in my own little world there. That's okay. a, a malaria-free world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he imbued these scores with so much passion. And I think it's actually a wonderful way to get to know the scores is in a, in a university setting where you're able to devote weeks and upon weeks upon weeks of, of this and I remember really specifically um, being the principal second for our performance of Mahler 5 and recording that on the CBC label and that was something that was very very special but it's still I think it's that's my second best Mahler moment because the Mahler 3rd symphony with with Tim Vernon and the Miguel symphony just yeah. it's still it's still one of the three or four 
best orchestra performances that I've ever been a part of. Who wants to go next with a Mahler moment? I want to hear Zach's obsession. Mm. <laughs> I am obsessed. Um, so, in case anybody doesn't know, uh, he's my favorite composer. Uh, I had a, a couple life-changing moments uh, listening to his symphonies. And uh, my, my license plate says Mahler, um, which is something I'm really proud of. Um, the um, how long have you had that license plate? Uh, so funny story. I um, when we moved back to Ohio in 2008, I had uh, gone to the DMV and they asked if I wanted a personalized plate. And I said, "Well, no." I mean, what would I choose? I, well, is Mahler available? I had to spell it, and they said, "No, somebody has it." But I could go on a waiting list. Ah. And I don't know, seven or eight years passed, and uh, <laughs> I get an email. I mean, who has this? You know, Think about it. Uh, if you still have the same email, if you're still interested in the same personal plate, yeah. you know, um, it's like a message in a bottle or but something. But I, 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 um, I thought it was just a junk email uh, because it was not formatted very well and said your your personalized request is available. And it was a couple of days later. I was in traffic and admiring a, a personalized plate in front of me, and uh, I said, "Oh yeah, I wonder what." wonder if that Mahler request and then it all hit me like a ton of bricks I said that's what the email was and I raced back to it sure enough it was and I, I ran to the DMV immediately for fear that some other Malerian uh, <laughs> had, had gotten it before me but uh, I got it you got it yeah and then some other poor person who had it was about <laughs> well, to renew and they were well, like sorry Charlie now, the, the funny thing was is when I was at the DMV the first time in 2008, they said, well, what's Mahler? And I said, what nudes? Who? Mahler, who was Mahler? Um, and I said, he's a composer. And the woman at the DMV said, well, did he write symphonies? And I said, did he write symphonies? <laughs> and she said, well, why don't you just choose? Like Mahler 1, Mahler 2, Mahler 3. And I said, I could not choose one. So I wouldn't allow myself to have the okay, regret. Okay, so you don't like one. <laughs> oh. So I, she, she yeah. was trying to help you out. It's kind she of like was. a password where you put your yeah. name in and, and the number like and an exclamation point yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, that that's a um, extended story about my license plate. But um, yeah, it was a performance of the third that um, just really uh, kind of changed the way I think about music. Um, you know, going through um, unfamiliar music. My my dad had once upon a time discouraged me from exploring Mahler because it was a little too grown up and um, it wouldn't sound very good on my Fisher-Price stereo. <laughs> and I would uh, steal a recording uh, from their collection, run it up to my bedroom and listen to it. And I would, I, you would, I remember with shaky hands putting it on my turntable and fear of getting caught for listening to Mahler. I mean, how silly is that? <laughs> and um, I probably put on like the second side because these symphonies are so long. There were many albums long. And it started in the middle of an explosion, you know, that would go into the next part of the album. And it it sounded like grown-up music, so I, I was afraid that somebody was going to hear it and then come racing to my bedroom and yank it off of the turntable. Um, so it was only as a, as a high schooler that I heard Mahler for the first time, and it was the Third Symphony. Um, and I just remember having tears flooding down my cheeks and um, having to look up at the peristyle ceiling just because I, I couldn't take any more input. Yeah. I just I had to take at least sight away. And um, it, uh, it was a life-changing moment. Well, it, it's powerful enough to listen to the music, just like even like we're doing in the background. It, mm -hmm. it grabs your attention every once in a while. But to sit in a theater 
and to have the sound wash over you in a communal experience with mm-hmm. other audience goers, that is uh, just an epic uh, experience that you, you can't duplicate in any other fashion. You know, and uh, that's what we're going to get this weekend. It's an oral spectacle, I yeah. think. That's one of the, the terms that goes through my mind. Um, and there's a sense that if you have every instrument in the orchestra playing at the same time, that that can actually sound really bad. Uh, but he manages it somehow, and yeah. uh, I love it. So, You're up, Effie. Let's hear your uh, Mahler mm. and me story. I have so many. I don't know how far back I want to go. Um, I learned about Mahler, of course, through my music studies back when I was in Greece. And I had never listened to a Mahler piece other than something that I would catch on the radio every now and then because uh, LPs were very expensive. And when I went to college, it was the first recording I ever bought for mm. myself mm. with a lot of money that I know I paid. I remember the recording. It was an LP of Bernard Haitink conducting the Concertgebouw. And I think that was my initial musicological entry mm-hmm. because mm. I was listening to the music, but I was also interested in reading the program notes included in the recording. And that's how I realized, oh my gosh, there is so much history that goes with this piece. Mm -hmm. I want to find out more and I want to learn more. And that was the bug. And then, of course, when I came to the United States and I was at the program at Boston University uh, in the PhD program, and I was looking for a topic for my dissertation, the number one topic was Mahler. Um, I had the sense not to delve into Mahler for my entire <laughs> dissertation, uh, but it's there. I, I talked about the Eighth Symphony mm-hmm, as part mm-hmm. of my dissertation. Um, I had the opportunity to perform the Second Symphony under Gilbert Kaplan, a very odd choice, as maybe we will discuss later. But he came to Boston University to conduct the chorus and orchestra, and I made everything possible to be in the chorus mm-hmm. and sing yeah. <laughs> the second symphony, as I will again. Um, and I have, in terms of performances, because my life since then, of course, has been a lot of research about Mahler and his life, and Alma Mahler, mm-hmm. uh, which is another obsession of mine. Um, the most memorable performance, though, that I have is having been invited in 2011 to go to Vienna and participate in a Mahler festival. And I remember I gave a paper on Mahler, but it was an old Malerian <laughs> concert anyway, an old Malerian conference. And they had invited um, Michael Tilson Thomas mm-hmm. with the San Francisco Symphony to perform Mahler's Ninth. Mm-hmm. No. Um, I, I don't remember a more transcendent performance than that. And of course, the ninth is absolutely heavenly from beginning to end. But then to have that orchestra mm-hmm. and MTT in Vienna uh, at that very special place, it was the unforgettable experience for yeah. me. Well, let's take a quick break, because it is that time of year at uh, WGTE. We're going to take a quick little break and uh, let the folks uh, ask you for your donations to support programs like this one here on FM 91. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast, hey, this is as good a time as any to uh, 
call up or to uh, log on and support your public radio station, WGTE.org or 866-380-4664. And thanks. with our Mahler Resurrection podcast today on Toledo Symphony Lab. That's the opening of the Resurrection Symphony. Uh, I'm joined here by Merwin Sue, Zach Vasser, and Effie Papanikolaou, and we're talking about Mahler and Mahler's Second Symphony specifically. The beginning of this sounds to me a little bit like um, the opening to Die Valkyra, hmm. right? And that little, the, the tremolo strings. Mm-hmm. There's also a little bit of Earl Koenig in there and yes, a little yeah. bit of like the Mexican hat dance, you know? I'll never hear so it many the same way. Going right away here. from that for just yeah. a second, there's a wonderful <laughs> hey, story. There's, there's a wonderful story about Mahler and DeValkir. That was what? my musicological analysis. How'd I do, Effie? What do you think? If I wrote my paper on Mahler. I'm not going to say anything because I need to be on your good side. So. <laughs> no, you don't. It's okay. <laughs> it's such an uh, opening, though. It, it, it uh, captures your attention, much like Beethoven 5. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know that it's going to be a different symphony. You compare this to the opening of the first symphony or the opening of any of the other modelers, honestly. Yeah. This one is just uh, drags you into this sort of chuntering, strangling theme, and uh, it moves up and down and always keeps coming back. It's just outstanding. It's yeah. funny that you mentioned De Valkyrie because he was conducting it right around the time he was starting to sketch this first movement, and yeah. there was this very famous performance where the prompter's box caught on fire. <laughs> wow. And I always thought that, you know, like, appropriate. I mean, for De Valkyrie, it should be easy, right? There's lots of water around. Everything should be fine, but it wasn't. <laughs> they had to stop the performance. You just skip but, to the end of Gouda Demerung and bring <laughs> on right. the Rhine. Yeah, but then they actually kept going. Like, they like, like, okay, well, fire's out. Let's keep going. And then it was yeah. a very, very um, famous performance. And, you know, I think um, Mahler's so famous for introducing Wagner to so many different mm-hmm. audiences. Yeah. But. Well, we have to remember him as an opera conductor and what a huge influence that always huge. had on his Absolutely. symphonies. I want to come back to that concept. Yeah. yeah. Effie, what do you have for us? What do I have for you? Um, I mean, you have a lot of stuff to talk about, I know, so I'm just going to let you have the soapbox for a few minutes here. For a few minutes, yes, thank you. Um, This uh, movement had a little bit of extra musical association for him. He he called it the funeral rites, Mm -hmm. totem fire. And when he composed this first movement, he was very excited about it, and he played it for Hans von Bülow. And I don't remember if we talked about Hans von Bülow before, so. but we Hans von Bülow, bit, yeah. 
was a very famous conductor and pianist. He was Franz Liszt's piano student, uh, very famous for premiering Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto. He was also an amazing conductor and proponent of Wagner's music. Yeah, but everybody remembers him as, you know, the the first husband of Cosima. Of Cosima, (laughs) right, right, because he eventually married one of Liszt's daughters, right. Uh, that's a whole. We have to have an entire show here on Hans yeah. von Below. He's an amazing person. But you, Zach, Zach is rolling his eyes because I always go straight for the, you know. <laughs> you go straight for the love triangle. Yeah, I love exactly. it. Exactly. Straight for the gossip. <laughs> anyway, all gossip aside. Well, what happens next is not actually gossip; it's reality. Uh, Hans von Below was kind of Mahler's idol in many mm. ways, and he was. Uh, looking up to him as a conductor as well. So he played the first movement and von Bülow looked at him and said, if this is music, I don't know anything about music. And he had some other choice words to say to him. Is that like a compliment or a not compliment? No, he oh, was no. covering his ears. It's sort yeah. of like yeah. when somebody yeah. plays for you and you're like, I've never heard anything like it, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a little more pointed than yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Mahler was devastated. He yeah. was devastated. And some scholars have attributed his delay in continuing with the symphony mm. to the fact that Hans von Bülow really didn't like what he heard. Yeah. The delay was years. I mean, It, it was, was years. Really Real writer's block. Right. He had written already the second and the third movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't know how to finish it. And Mm -hmm. also, how do you finish a work when you start with a death? Usually death comes at the end, right? Mm -hmm. But when the first movement is about death... Where do you go from there? Was the was the um, was the first movement written with the concept of resurrection in mind, or was that Not applied at later? All. Not at all. I was going to say that's where you go from yeah. death. Yeah. That's where you go. But yeah. probably he didn't know that at the time, and it was again because of Billow, ironically, <laughs> that he came up with the idea of resurrection. Because Billow in eighteen forty in, in eighteen ninety four died oh. helpfully. Mm. Helpfully. (laughs) So Mahler went to his funeral, and at his funeral, he heard this choir sing the text that opens the fifth, um, the vocal part, the chorus part of the fifth movement. Auferstein, yeah, Auferstein, you will rise, yes, you will rise, sung by a choir. And all of a sudden, Mahler is consumed by this idea of resurrection. And there are reports, and we see it in his letters too, where he goes outside and he runs to his room and he starts writing down music. And he comes out and he talks to his friends and he says, I have it. Now my symphony is complete. Mm. So after this writer's block between the third movement and the fifth movement, uh, then... He had the fifth movement and he went back and he said to himself, okay, maybe I need to transition seamlessly between the third movement and the fifth movement about the resurrection. And I need a movement there that is going to provide this link. Mm-hmm. And that's why he included then one of his Wunderhorn songs, Urlicht. Yeah. So he wrote it one, two, three, five, four. Five, four. That's incredible. I've always wondered why that is sitting where it does. He had already yeah. composed the yeah. song, but it right. was for piano, and then he decided to orchestrate it. Well, but it. The, the third movement's also a Wunderhorn song. But without text. Right, yeah. right. Mm. right. I think it's fascinating that we, you hear these recordings and you hear these performances, and they seem so inevitable. Like, oh, well, this has to have been the way he conceived it. And it's amazing to me that Mahler was like, 
Should I flip the second and third movements? Yeah. He was he was quite uncertain about like the yeah. ordering of his movements, not just for this symphony, for the third symphony as well. And then like to me, it's always astonishing that he's he wrote the third symphony. He's like, I think I need another half hour at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and then just like yeah. <laughs> and it's just you, stunning to me. And yeah. if you look here at the facsimile, at yeah. the end of the third movement, he has in blue letters in his handwriting coda. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, there is no coda to yeah. the third movement. Yeah. And if he actually wanted to write coda to the end of the third movement, it would have been an even more gigantic yeah. piece. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how long is this symphony generally? Seventy minutes or so? No, ninety. Ninety minutes. Yeah, it's it's a two disc set. Seventy, ninety. I mean, you know, that's a coda right there. If you do it with a coda or without a coda, <laughs> and, and Effie, you brought in this this big tome, this gigantic reproduction of the original manuscript, right? Right, of his handwritten manuscript. manuscript. And. and You've got all kinds of little post-it notes sticking out from there. What what are all those? Are those your annotations that you have? Or when I was going through this tome, as you said, I just couldn't couldn't take my eyes off of all the information. And it's not just the information that, more or less, after twenty five years, is familiar to me, but it's it's always the details that get me. Mm. There is there are so many details, and when you look at the score because he conducted from the score. Mm-hmm. We have his own handwritten annotations, and we, we can see him struggling sometimes, and he will change something. And then you go to the printed score, and you say, oh, yeah, yes, when it was printed, it was changed, because he made that change before he conducted the score. Mm. And, yeah, that change makes sense. Wow. He was constantly revising. And, of course, all of us who have been through Mahler's scores, we know that he's always very detailed mm-hmm. about how you should perform the music. He always gives directions to the conductor, mm-hmm. to the horn players, to the mm-hmm. violin players, to the entire orchestra. Do it this way. Do it that way. It's not just your regular Italian or even German annotations about tempo and dynamics. It's uh, play Raise like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I um, and this is where I go to his opera, his yeah. opera experience, because he would have offstage uh, brass. He would uh, have the orchestra performing uh, on their in- instruments in unique ways. Um, he gave a lot of information about exactly what he was looking for. Um, he never recorded any of his music. Uh, it would have been very early recordings if he did. Uh, but that's all, almost maddening because, despite all of this clarity of of expectation, um, there's still a huge amount of space for interpretation. I wonder if I wonder if you, Mahler was um, at all forgiving about conductors interpreting his scores, or if he was, or if this was almost like this sort of manic need to control the performances, because Mahler himself, as a conductor, was very open to reinterpreting other people's scores. He, sure. like, he, he rewrote Beethoven's yeah. Ninth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he had he had very few qualms about doing this, and it's always act- actually been really interesting to me um, and I, that you know we so comfortably always perform Mahler in German. And he, when he was in Hungary, he he would translate all of the operas <laughs> to Hungarian, so that people would understand all of the text. And it's like the idea that somebody would do that to a Mahler movement is. It seems sacrilegious, mm-hmm. but the idea that he would have done that to, you know, 
to Bellini, yeah. <laughs> like to sing, sing a like like to 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 perform Bellini or to perform Verdi in Hungarian also seems pretty pretty wrong. But he felt very comfortable doing that, and I wonder what he would have thought about. Well, but uh, the only people who would be conducting it in his lifetime were his acolytes. So, yeah. but then again, if he had lived for another thirty years, yeah. you know, yeah. we would have much more of a record as far as his wishes go. Yeah, but we have information that sometimes he didn't like somebody's performances of his music, and he would say that. Yeah. And in just one case, I remember a conductor had a good suggestion for him, which was very brave to go up to Mahler and say, <laughs> "You know, what if I do it this way?" Hey, guys. <laughs> and Mahler agreed, and he wrote him a very warm letter in which he said, "You know, I really liked your suggestion, and thank you for saying that." <laughs> wow. Yeah. But that was, you know, I'm sure that that was a rare occurrence. Very so, rare. Yeah. <laughs> Very rare. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and I want to uh, do a, a little quiz that I have for you all, and then I want to talk about the whole idea of resurrection and how it manifests in this symphony uh, before we go. You're listening to Toledo Symphony Lab again. It is fundraising time at WGTE, so please do call up or log on to the website. You can make a donation at WGTE.org or 866-380-4664. Back with Toledo Symphony Lab talking about Gustav Mahler and his Symphony Number no. Two, the Resurrection Symphony. Uh, it's happening this weekend at the Peristyle, Friday and Saturday at eight o'clock p.m. Elaine Trudel and the Toledo Symphony, along with soprano Sarah Schaefer, mezzo Susan Platts, also assembled choruses from the community that are performing as well. This magnificent symphony, which bears the subtitle of the Resurrection Symphony. And I want to talk with the panel about the idea of resurrection and how it manifests in this particular symphony. But before we get there, we have a quiz. We have to have a quiz every single episode, especially when you're coming back, Effie. I have a quiz that I have assembled just with you in mind. Just for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And and given that uh, the College of Musical Arts is having the graduation ceremonies uh, on Saturday as well, on the 17th, Mm -hmm. I have uh, some music to go in the background that is just for you. This is for our quiz music. Oh. Okay. <laughs> not by Mahler. <laughs> not by Mahler. By the Malerian. Not, not even by Elgar, really, in this case, as you'll hear. I hope shortly. I didn't sound too disgusted when I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely let out an oh. <laughs> yeah. If, if, that's kind of like one of those, if, if I know music, then this is not music kind of quotes. I, yeah. I thought you were going to play us more Mahler. I was excited. No. We'll, we'll get some more Mahler in a moment here. Okay. This is called uh, Who Said It, Mahler or Mozart? Oh. So I have different quotes, <laughs> and you have to tell me if it was Mahler or if it was Mozart. And this is just Effie it. playing, not me. Yeah. Or Merwin, right? <laughs> no, this is everybody. At least Darn we have it. one. <laughs> the first one. one to two. <laughs> I'm getting it right. <laughs> Mahler or Mozart. This should be pretty simple. The first one is easy. A symphony must be like the world. It must contain everything. That's Mahler. Well, well, oh, yes. Yay! That's easy. That's Mahler. But you didn't say it, Effie, so you didn't get that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I uh, will give it to gets, Merwin. Fine. No, Zach got the point. <laughs> oh, Zach, Zach got, got the point. point. That's okay. my last point, point folks. Okay. I'll abstain one the rest. One for Z. Here we go. 
Here's a second, qu- uh, second quote. Destiny smiles upon me, but without making me the least bit happier. Mahler or Mozart? Sounds like Mozart. Yeah, yeah I would go with Mozart. Mahler! <laughs> <laughs> That's Merwin? Good one. I love these coin flip questions. Okay. Uh, I love it. I am one of those who will go on doing till all doings are at an end. Mozart or Mahler? Wow. That really sounds like both of them, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yes, I it mean, could be. Yeah, it really could. Or um, any composer for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll, well, say I'll say Mozart. I'll say Mozart. Merwin is cleaning up. Okay, here's the next one. I cannot write poetically, for I am no poet. I cannot make fine artistic phrases that cast light and shadow, for I am no painter. I can neither by signs nor by pantomime express my thoughts and feelings, for I am no dancer, but I can by tones, for I am a musician. Remember, this is all translated from German, in in both the case of Mozart and Mahler, right? So I think we're allowed to get this question wrong because we were all distracted by that weird snare drum thingy <laughs> that just <laughs> I told you. into the... Yeah. <laughs> I told you, it wasn't even Elgar. Well, take a guess. What do you say, Merwin? Well, I kind of think Mahler was a poet because he wrote poetry, so I'm going to yeah. go with Mozart. That is Mozart. I'm going to rename this quiz Mahler, Mozart, or Merwin. Right? <laughs> oh, I never said anything that interesting. <laughs> Here's the next one. I pay no attention whatever to anybody's praise or blame. I simply follow my own feelings. Wow, that feels like Mozart. Yay! All right. One for Zach. I was a crazy young man who let himself be blinded by his passions and obeyed only the impulses of the moment. Brad Cresswell. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> no, he was talking in past tense. I'm still in the present tense. <laughs> Truth or dare, come on. <laughs> hey, we have, we have uh, an extra ten minutes. I was a crazy young man who let himself be blinded by his passions and obeyed only the impulses of the mo- moment. Anybody got a guess? I would, I would say Mahler, just because Yay! Mozart was only a young man. Yeah, it was Mahler. <laughs> Mahler at least made it into his early 50s, just about. If I were obliged to marry all those with whom I have jested, I should have at least 200 wives. What? That sounds like Mozart. <laughs> Mozart said that? Uh, yeah, I mean... According to BuzzFeed, or BuzzFeed, <laughs> oh, no. No, noted no. musicological I, source, I, BuzzFeed. <laughs> it's not BuzzFeed. I did some research on all of this. That, that was a joke. Okay, here's a good one. If you think you're boring your audience, go slower, not faster. <laughs> these are maybe these are quotes that they should have said, right? That sounds like Mahler. Yay! Merwin once again. <laughs> Let's see. Maybe I'll just find one more. With the coming of spring, I am calm again. Ooh. We'll say Mahler. Yay! That's Zach. Well, I mean, with one, two, three, four, five, six questions correct, the prize has to go to Merwin. Yay. (laughs) Oh, that's a lot better than the gaze that I thought I was going to get. (laughs) Actually, I'll give you this one because this is a new addition to the soundboard. You know what that is? <laughs> no, we've that, never heard of that that's, before. That's the so-called Mahler death shriek. 
that I, that appears in this symphony yeah. a couple times. I'll give yeah. you the, the the fuller version of it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Yeah, so that little gesture signifying, I've heard or I've read, signifying death. They call it the death shriek. Not Does that sound familiar to you, or did I just make that up? I, I don't think I have heard this exact <laughs> There are a couple of shrieks. I mean, there, there's a shriek at the end of the third movement as yeah. well. Um, there's which, a lot of shrieking going on. Um, but it, it, Which is one of my questions for Effie. Um, is the way that the third movement ends first of all the third movement is I think in some ways the most fascinating um, it, because it's this odd very powerful scherzo with this gorgeous theme in the middle that doesn't seem to belong uh, he does amazing things with harp and trumpets um, and then he finishes with this one of the great um, cacophony in orchestral music yeah. And a very low sound. Yeah. And then yeah. the poor alto soloist has, has to, to come follow in. that. Yeah. Because <laughs> it finishes with uh, with the tam. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I feel like it's a punctuation of something. I don't know what, though. And then we go into Urlicht. Yeah. It, it is a stunning moment. Yeah. And of course, um, I don't know how many people at that moment expect that a voice is going to come in. Yeah. But. That makes it even more stunning yeah. that all of a sudden you hear this very loud sound, then a very low sound in the orchestra, silence, and the soloist comes in with this ethereal sound, singing, oh, Red Rose, yeah. Yeah. which is one of the Wunderhorn songs. And it, the, the entire song depicts this kind of naive faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it doesn't talk about God. It doesn't say anything about God specifically other than it says, okay, I will return to God. Sorry, it says God there. But it's this image of heaven mm-hmm. and of ascending, of eternal life, of blessed eternal life. And that's why Mahler really thought it was a great segue to the fifth movement. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think it's worth knowing that um, it, it's stunning to me that Mahler is 28, 29, 30 when he's writing this. And he just been devastated by the deaths of his parents. And I think that with the second and the third movements, you're really talking about somebody who has lived through that. This one movement, the second movement, which is really like, it's almost like, you know, reminiscing with your family members or your friends mm-hmm. and thinking about this this great memory that you had and then the third movement is like you have to go back and do do the re- you have to go back into the real world and it has and it feels awful and like i think um he chose like you know saint uh, saint anthony speaking to the fishes because people don't understand like you know you're like so there's this Live, living that you're trying to go through you're, you have to go through this but there's this emotional wrestling that's happening and 
people don't understand what what you're going right. through. And I think that third movement, in a way, it there's that kind of like multi layers where it's like there's this like almost like peaceful beginning where it's like oh everything is just fine the fish are swimming around and mm-hmm. then underneath there's this just like emotional torture uh, give us a little for people who don't know uh, what, what is the anthony and the fishes thing there tell us about that well i would actually defer to the musicological authority <laughs> but uh, but okay, there's, no, con- there's no congregation i'm um, saying that he's right. has prepared you know a, a sermon and there is no congregation mm-hmm. so he is literally you know going to preach pre- to the preach fish to the fish because but, uh, yeah and did, the fish the, listened and yeah. he says he was very happy he gave a very nice sermon and the yeah. fish listened but at the end of the day fish didn't change yeah they remained the same yeah and it's this kind of eventuality of you're, you're listening to so many things around you. You go through so many things. Yeah. But if you don't change, and then, then you there's have, a futility. You have a fish fry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this futility goes very well, exactly, I think, yeah. with the idea of mm-hmm. resurrection that if everything is futile, something has to be there. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. it's very interesting because the original. Um, Wunderhorn's song is nowhere near as pessimistic. It's no, it's, no. Yeah. So no. I think that it's really informed um, this this setting. This that's the setting in the symphony is really informed. Maybe, maybe even more so by the death of his mother, because mm-hmm. he was able to, I think, at least come to some sort of terms with the death of his father. But he wasn't able to attend his mother's funeral. And, and one of his sisters died at the yeah. same time. And by the time the symphony was completed, his, bro- his yeah. brother had committed suicide. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of pain in his life. That's, yeah, and I, as a young man. You, you as know, a young he, man, yeah, yeah. So do you but, think that the, the, the resurrection of the piece, the ending, the triumphal sort of ending, is his reaction to all of that pain in his life, his ultimate reaction to it? Mahler is looking for literature. He doesn't know a care where it comes from. He's looking for words, for, for verses, anything that can capture he, the way he feels and mm-hmm. then set it to music. Mm. And so many times he writes in his letters, you know, I'm trying to find the right text and I'm looking at the Bible. I'm looking in literature. I'm looking mm-hmm. into Faust. In, I'm looking into this book and that book. And he's trying to find something that he, he can grasp on and say, yes, this is exactly what I want in my music. But it, the, w- Was it the text he was looking for? Did the, did the words have to, s- to, to read like the, he was hearing it in his mind, or was he looking for something to inspire him to write music? I think he was reading for something to inspire him, for the text gotcha. that was going to inspire him to <laughs> say in his music what he wanted gotcha. to say. Wasn't there some hesitation, though, on his part to write a choral finale, just given mm-hmm. comparisons to Beethoven? Um, I think he always wanted a choral finale for that specific symphony. At that point, Beethoven's ninth was way in the past, and it was not something that was frowned upon. What is more interesting here, I think, with the idea of resurrection and Mahler being so um, caught into this vortex of ideas about resurrection and about life after death is the fact that he was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he was still Jewish when he was writing this symphony. He had not converted yet. 
Um, so this idea of resurrection is something that he didn't grow up with. Mm. It was not part of his background, of his cultural background, of his cultural makeup, mm-hmm. which again speaks to the idea that for him it was about something that was that interested him. Yeah, it I was a, a literary gesture. A literary that, gesture, that, that yes. Fit with the, the the overall tone of the symphony, the yes. arc, arc of the symphony. Yes. But one thing that I think is extraordinarily fascinating: you talk about his search for texts and how. In how you know extensive those tech, those searches were, and I think it's amazing that after six years of sublimating his world into this symphony, he found texts, and then he wrote his own. To finish, he wrote his own. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning yeah. it, Merwin, because people forget that only the first two stanzas exactly. of the last movement yeah. are by Friedrich Klopstock, yeah. this great German yeah. author. Yeah. And then the rest of the movement, especially where the soloists yeah. come in, yeah. is Mahler. It's as if these floodgates have opened, mm-hmm. and now that he has the opening to Auferstein, now he can write his yeah. own glossing mm-hmm. on Auferstein. Yeah. Can, can you read it in translation, what his part of the poetry is? Yes, it starts with um, the soloist singing, Oh, I believe my heart, oh, believe nothing is lost with you. Yours is what you have desired, thine what thou hast loved, what thou hast fought for. Oh, believe, you were not born in vain. Have you not lived in vain, suffered in vain? And it ends with really a fantastic gloss on Klopstock's uh, resurrection motif. Rise again, you will rise again, my heart, in the twinkling of an eye. What you have fought for shall lead you to God. Mm. And the last word we hear is God. Right. And it's a spectacular moment for chorus and soloists and orchestra. Yeah, and it will be spectacular to be sitting in the audience and experience that. I'm playing a little bit of the, we're not quite at the point that you were talking about, we're playing a little bit of the final part of the last movement of the, the symphony here. And we'll end with the ending of it. But before we get to that, uh, what else, what, what do you want people to know about this symphony and this experience before they, they go? Um, so this is of course our 75th anniversary season so we've looked back into history at many points um, to determine a way to celebrate and this is a symphony that has been used for celebration just because of its its grandeur and everything that it achieves if you know this symphony it's very moving to see it performed live if you don't know this symphony it's very inspiring to see it performed live um, and it, it affects people in, in really uh, super musical ways. Um, the symphony, the Toledo Symphony, that is, first performed this work uh, 60 years ago. Um, the conductor was Joseph Hawthorne, and he went to uh, one of the symphony's supporters at the time to figure out whether they would be able to get enough money to perform the Mahler Second. And the original board of the symphony thought it was a very... Um, daring investment. It would require a lot of extra performers and singers and it sounded very expensive. Um, but Steve Stranahan brought every one of those trustees into his home to play the Mahler too and help them understand why this was artistically valuable and important for Toledo. 
uh, Steve passed away in January of this year, and uh, we are uh, dedicating these performances to Steve's memory. Yeah. Uh, he was a wonderful supporter of the orchestra, and um, we really associate the life of the Mahler second with Toledo, with his name and his, his efforts 60 years ago. Um, and it has since been performed not just by Joseph Hawthorne, but um, Yuval Zaluk uh, in his first and last years as music director. Uh, Andrew Massey uh, had a famous performance of it where the choir was seated behind the columns of the peristyle. Um, Stefan Sanderling, of course, and now our wonderful Alain Trudel. Yeah, and the whole symphony itself taking on an additional significance when you talk about Steve Stranahan and his investment in, in the symphony, and the, which still stands his artistic legacy in our community. Right. Yeah, wonderful, uh, beautiful tribute. Merwin, you have something you want to add? Well, you mentioned Andrew Massey's name, and Andrew was the music director when I um, came to this orchestra, and also somebody very, very touched by the spirit of Mahler and and some, you know, certainly I'll be thinking of Andrew and in these yeah. moments. As who who has passed away yes. as yeah. well, for folks who don't know. Yeah. Effie, do you want to take the last word and just kind of give us a a, a last-minute little Mahlerian take on what we have in store for us? Sure. Um, Mahler himself also thought very highly of this symphony. He loved to conduct it. He It was the last piece he conducted in Vienna before he left in 1908, mm to come to the United States for his first season at the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Philharmonic. It was the last concert he conducted before he died in Paris on his way back to Vienna. And um, if I can channel Mahler here for a moment, I don't think it was because only it was such a painful experience for him to uh, go through this entire symphony compositionally from beginning to end. It took him such a long time to complete. But um, it's the, also this idea of heaven and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And it's not about a religion. It's not about Christian heaven or any kind of afterlife in any other place or religious idea. It's about everybody's own heaven. What we think of heaven when we think visually or we sense heaven to be and I would like to think that um, that's what it sounds like up there in Mm -hmm. heaven Mm. what Mahler has composed yeah a world unto itself and and that world is recreated in everybody's mind you know for themselves when they listen to Mahler's music this concert is happening again uh, Friday and Saturday the 17th and 18th of May at 8 o'clock p.m. it's at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle Symphony Number no. 2, The Resurrection Symphony of Gustav Mahler, Elaine Trudel, and the Toledo Symphony. Soloists Sarah Schaefer and Susan Platts, along with assembled choruses, performing music of Mahler. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of our program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple and Google Podcasts. My thanks to Zach Vasser, Merwin Sue, and Effie Papanicolaou. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.